Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we're joined by Bree Buchanan. Bree, thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. And for our listeners, Bree is joining us today to talk about lawyer well-being. Bree is the founding co-chair of the National Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being and chair of the ABA Commission on Lawyers Assistant Programs. Bree is also a senior advisor at Krill Strategies, LLC. So jumping into this topic of well-being, first, Bree, let's talk about wellness or well-being and how we're going to be defining that for the purposes of this conversation. Sure. I think that's a really important distinction to make. And when the National Task Force first got together and we decided that we would write a report, we knew that we needed to make a definition of what it is that we wanted to to take on. And so there was a debate. Do we use the word wellness? Do we use the word well-being? And parsing the, the word that's not a great distinction, but the authors of the report felt that wellness has a connotation of more of physical health and well-being is a much broader term that includes emotional and mental health as well. And we wanted to really encourage people to be thinking as broadly as possible. Also the idea that interventions for people that may have trouble around the issue of of well-being, that it's not just the sort of typical wellness topics that we think of, you know, chair massages and fun runs. It's much broader idea than that. Great. Thank you. So let's go back to the beginning of the work of the National Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being. What I'd like to know, and I'm sure what our listeners would like to know, is why was this created? I think many assume and understand that most attorney positions are high stress, high demand, uh, just high volume and require a lot of time investment on the part of the attorney. And so there's plenty of intuitive reasons to, to investigate why we would need to look into attorney well-being. But what were the instigators that led to this task force being created? What was it in response to? Those of us who have been working around lawyer impairments and lawyer well-being, and a lot of that are people who provide services through the lawyer's assistance programs, we've known for a long time that these are real issues for the legal community, that we didn't have good data. And then along comes 2016, and we have two very um, reliable large studies, one of lawyers and one of law students that were both published that year. And so again, those of us who work on these issues, we knew that we had a window of opportunity here. We finally had really good, reliable data that had been published in in journals. Um, And we decided that we needed to come together and do something with this information, this window of opportunity that we had. 
So three national organizations first came together. It was actually at an ABA annual meeting, nothing sanctioned. We knew we'd see each other. And this is one of the also the benefits of having these connections. We all had conversations already. So our cohort from the National Organization of Bar Council, from the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers, and then the ABA's Commission on Lawyers Assistance Programs, we said, hey, we're all going to be in San Francisco. Let's grab a conference room or meeting room somewhere and sit down and talk about what we can do to take advantage again of this window of opportunity. So we did that. And out of that conversation came the beginning of the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. And we, I don't know what was in the air or in the Kool-Aid that day, but we decided that we were going to create a movement to change the culture of the legal profession and how it addresses lawyer health and well-being. So in looking at these reports that came out in 2016 that you saw as this moment of opportunity, what was, what was it that you saw in the trends that sparked so much momentum? Well, in the first study, I'll talk about the lawyer study again, published in 2016, and we saw that lawyers were experiencing problematic drinking, which was defined as hazardous and possibly physically dependent at the rate of 20%, and that's the number for all lawyers. Um, Also, that concerns of mental health issues across one's legal career 46% had experienced depression at some point in their legal career, 61% anxiety, and 11.5% had experienced suicidal thoughts at some point. We were very concerned about those numbers. The thing, though, that we did not expect was a surprise in the data and was actually the most concerning is the trend as it in regards to young lawyers. And regardless of the impairment or the problem, behavioral health issue, younger lawyers experience those at a highly disproportionate rate of all the other lawyers. Previously, those of us who've been doing this work had thought that the longer you were a lawyer, the higher the levels of depression or substance abuse. And actually, this very reliable study of a large number of lawyers revealed that it was the lawyers under 30 years of age. The other trend that we saw was in the other study of law students. And that also, uh, 15 diverse law schools, 3,300 law students responded. And we saw that 25% were at risk for an alcohol use disorder, 17% screen positive for depression. One of the greatest concerns we saw, just picking up a piece of data from that, 42% felt they needed mental health help in the last year, but only half of those sought assistance. And that allowed us to really drill down and see a big issue You know, we know that law school is very stressful, so is being a lawyer. And some of these issues are going to come up. But what we want more than anything is that when a law student or a lawyer has trouble, that they ask for help and get help. Because in 2019, in this day and age, there's plenty of help available out there. And what we saw is there there was a huge reticence 
to ask for help. Really low rates of what's called help-seeking behavior. And so we were very concerned about that. And in a lot of ways, what it means for the legal profession, because we've got law students who are experiencing these issues at disproportionately high rates. You've got young lawyers whose rates are highly disproportionate to the general public, but even just to the the rest of the legal population. And we want them to be willing to get help and ask for help. Okay, so then what are some of the barriers that have been discovered through these reports that are directly tied to the profession of the law specifically? Well, a lot of it is around stigma. I mean, it's amazing that in this day and age that there is still so much stigma that surrounds mental health problems and substance abuse problems, even though these are physical disorders, but people still carry a lot of shame that are related to them. There's still somehow this lingering idea that if you would just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you should get over it. And if you don't, then you're a shameful person. And so the tendency is to hide these issues, which is really unfortunate because also with these disorders, depression in particular, substance abuse, these are progressive problems. So we really want people to get help. And so there's shame, there's stigma. The studies asked specifically for the people who admitted that they were having these issues and they didn't get help. Why not? And the answers were very similar in both the law student survey and the lawyer. And it was all around the fear that somebody would find out and it could threaten my reputation, threaten my ability to be admitted to the bar, threaten my ability to get a job. And the idea that I really want to handle this myself, I don't want anybody else to know about it. So as you speak to my reputation, Do you feel like one thing that makes the culture that lawyers work within different is that a reputation could be held against you by your competition in court? Or is it more about competition at the law firm or not even competition, but just concerns at the law firm for managing risk? Is that what you found that people were speaking to or is that just a an inference at this point that you might dig further into, or what is it about the law profession itself that makes those things particularly salient? We're so concerned about our reputation and what people think of us. And the idea as a lawyer that we have to be warriors for our clients, we have to go in and put on our suit of armor and fight for them. And the belief that this could be some chink in the armor, that we're going to show a vulnerability to the opposing counsel. There's belief somehow that this means you're weak and incapable. And so perhaps within a law firm setting, it may mean that you'll get passed over for assignments, which can have an impact on your career. And so there's been a lot of work. There has been, even prior to these studies, but even more now, to try and get the word out that these disorders are things that can be treated. There are so 
many lawyers who have experienced these things, they're all around us in whatever work setting we may be in or law school setting, but people don't talk about it. And so for one of the things that the ABA's Commission on Lawyers Assistance Programs has just done is released a video that was promoted and endorsed by past president Bob Carlson that has high level members of the bar, the legal profession, and law students who are talking about having depression, having an anxiety disorder, having a substance abuse problem, and they're using their names, and they're using where they work. There's no black bar over their face. The voices are not distorted. People are really speaking up, and so borrowing from other social issues where there's been a lot of stigma, studies have shown that the best way that you start to break down that stigma is if there's somebody that you identify with who speaks up and says, I have this issue, I've dealt with it, I'm in recovery, I'm better, and I'm a productive professional. Going back to the task force and the report that resulted from your work, let's also talk about who you're targeting with this report. Who are you trying to reach? So the report was developed very much in mind with sending a message to the leaders of the profession. All of us who are part of the task force believed very strongly that the report should not go to individual lawyers. We were not going to write a report that told individual lawyers, you need to eat your vegetables and exercise. That's not going to bring a systemic shift in the culture. Right, that's more of a service. (laughs) And actually, the report really is a missive to the Supreme Court chief in each state because that's the person with whom sort of the buck stops there in regards to issues of the legal profession. And so we're asking, in particular, the chief of each state Supreme Court, as well as the leaders of the different stakeholders that comprise the legal profession, to make well-being first for themselves a priority and be an example, but then also for in whatever area in which they are a leader. So when I say stakeholders, just to be clear, when I'm talking about the report was to judges, regulators. So those are the folks that do discipline for lawyers. There's a section for legal employers, law schools, bar associations, professional liability carriers, and lawyer assistance programs. So we're talking to the leaders of those entities saying, you have the authority and the power to actually make changes. And here are the things that we're suggesting that you do. I think that's so great because oftentimes when you reach out to the people you know that are struggling, but that part of their struggle is they don't feel empowered to do anything about it. If you tell them you need to be doing this for your well-being, that can be, that can even just compound the problem because they don't feel empowered. So I think that's wonderful that you were targeting people in positions of leadership because if you're just at the early stages, you can just feel like, well, I'm just part of the system. I can't just impose all of this on leadership and say and demand this is what I need 
But if it comes from the top down, that's where real change can happen. So right. I, I think that's fantastic. Great example, just to put some mm -hmm. flesh on that, is if you look at law schools, where well, we can tell law students that they need to meditate or exercise. But what really needs to happen is there needs to be programming within the, the coursework about lawyer impairments and the issues that they may face. And there needs to be not just within the coursework, but for the deans of students to be able to put on presentations around this. It needs to sort of permeate throughout their experience at law school. And so that you have structures and programs and education that are in place to reinforce this message. Let's talk about the recommendations. I know in the full report, there are 44. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through all 44 of those. But what high-level recommendations can you share with us from the report? Sure. So there are 44 recommendations, and there are general recommendations to everyone in the legal profession. And then there were recommendations that were targeted specifically to the different stakeholders. And so some of the, I think, recommendations for everybody that are really important and foundational. And so one of the first ones is, is just simply for the legal profession to acknowledge that there is a problem and to take responsibility for action. The other thing that we thought was really important is that the leaders in every sector of the legal profession, they make this important for themselves personally and for the sphere where they have influence. So we're telling the chief justices and the head of the disciplinary councils to model what well-being looks like for the managing partners to take a vacation and let their, let their associates know they are going on vacation. They are going to go see their child's softball game. And just some of these real basic things and creating a space for the leaders to demonstrate that this this is what it looks like to be a lawyer in the 21st century. Another major recommendation is following up again around stigma and doing everything that can be done to destigmatize these issues and to promote help-seeking behaviors, encouraging people, making it okay for them to ask for help. So a real good example of this would be in the arena for legal employers. Having a policy for your firm or your office that says if you need to take leave because, say, you need to go into treatment because of uh, alcohol use disorder, that it's clear, who do you go talk to about that? What are the firm's obligations to you? What are your obligations to the firm? And just setting that out very clearly what the steps are, being transparent, and doing that in and of itself opens the door for people to be able to actually ask for help. With all that said, what do you want lawyers to know now? And what should their first steps toward well-being be? I think that, again, modeling what the National Task Force did, I think that in particular, those who are in leadership positions need to adopt this as a priority. And we're seeing that happen across the profession, at least the beginning of that. 
A great example is the ABA Wellbeing Pledge for Legal Employers. And this was started under ABA President Hillary Bass and then followed up by President Bob Carlson. It now has over 150 major legal employers. Now, this includes some of global firms, some of the largest law firms in the world, corporate counsel, law schools, signing up and saying that we are signing on to this seven-point pledge to transform our workplace to one where well-being is something that we talk about and promote. So I think the leaders should be looking at how they can incorporate this in whatever level they might be. And then also for individual lawyers to dial into this and to see that this is increasingly an area where what we want it to be on a real basic level is that it's okay to talk about these things. You know, decades ago, if somebody had cancer, we whispered the word. In some ways, until recently, and sometimes now, that's what we do with depression or substance use disorder. And so making it okay to talk about these things, being educated about if someone comes across your path in the legal profession who may have these issues, that you're willing to talk to them, share your story, offer support, maybe encourage access to resources. And so there can be a a full court press on both the highest levels as well as individuals taking responsibility to take action and make a change around how we as a profession deal with these issues. Great. Just a final question then before we let you go is where can people find this report and where can people even review that pledge and is it possible for them to see if their employer has taken the pledge? Great question. So in regards to the report, we have a website that is lawyerwellbeing.net and you can find out more about the report. We have an interactive map that shows which states are taking major action on this front. Specifically, one of the things that the report was encouraging people to do were for states to create their own statewide task force. So you can find out if your state is involved in that. In regards to the pledge, I think the easiest way is to put in your search engine ABA law firm or ABA legal employer well-being pledge. And if you put in a combination of those words, it will take you to the web pages on the ABA site. If anything, for myself, I hope that people listening will feel empowered by this as well. Just feeling like it's all well and good to talk about it, but how can this really help my life? I think that this task force has thought through those things. And so I hope that our listeners will look through things like the pledge, see what these employers are committing to do, and hold people accountable. If your employers pledge to do that, look for the manifestations of it in your firm and also just, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely, right. Right. Okay, well, thank you again for your time, Bree. Thank you for beginning this conversation 
for our listeners, we plan to dive into lawyer well-being on a criminal justice-specific level as a next step, knowing that public defenders, prosecutors, and just people in the criminal justice field face some unique burdens like secondary trauma and things like that that can add a heavy burden to their life. And we want to address that and and talk about ways that people can help themselves work through those burdens and what resources there can be for them should they need help. So stay tuned to the podcast for a continuation of this conversation. And thank you again, Brie, for joining us. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Podcast.